be seated. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. I have like a whole bunch of response cards that are right here. And uh, I guess that means I'm supposed to offer them to you today. I don't know. They're just a whole, whole stack of them right here. So if anybody feels the need to start responding, I've got cards right here. Okay. How are you doing this morning? You doing okay? All right. So I got a couple of looks. People look at the sweatshirt and they go, Brigham Young. Nope. <laughs> Not that. What is it? Bentonville Youth Group, that's right. Also, up for grabs this morning would be like, Ben, you going? Okay. Uh, we could do Bundy, you good? Right? Okay. But yeah, Bentonville Youth Group, the notorious BYG. We're just celebrating together that we have a great youth group and we love them. And by the way, there's a couple of great events coming up with our youth. One of them is this very next weekend. We hope that you are praying for the You Say Conference. They've got a nice table set up right here in the back. This is our Young Women's Conference. Nika Horshig has been organizing this and she's got a lot of speakers and people coming in who are going to do this ministry with our young women. So would you be praying over that this week, church? Uh, okay, and how about will the rest of you be praying over that this week, church? Okay, good. Well, let's start right now. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for being together here as the people of your church in Bentonville, and we are so loved by you that we feel gratitude, and we are so loved by you that we feel safe with you. We are so loved by you and have been cared for by you that we know that here is a place where we can worship, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray your blessing over this church and over this community. And we pray that here there would be peace and that there would be safety and that we could grow deeply in our knowledge and our likeness of Jesus. That we could learn to love you with our whole being and to love the people on our right and left, just like Jim spoke about this morning as we took the body and the blood of Jesus that reminds us how he loved you in worship while loving the people on his right and his left. Father, we pray that you would pour out a special blessing on the USA conference this weekend. Allow it to be a time when our young women and the women that come to join them from all over the state and the surrounding states would be reminded of who they are in Jesus Christ, who you say they are, and that that would be the chief identification of their life. Father, we entrust our worship and our scripture reading and the preaching to you, and we pray that uh, you would speak through these words of scripture in a way that would help us to encounter you and to know you better. We pray through the name of Jesus that's above every other name, and together we all say, Amen. Well, we're very glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we are still in our series looking at what it means that Jesus came uh, in the flesh, that Jesus came as a man. Uh, do we have a new member spotlight to welcome this morning? Okay, I noticed you didn't go to the PowerPoint, and I realized I forgot to welcome the Nichols family. Nichols, are you guys here this morning? Are they, are they here with us this morning, right back here? Okay, they're right back here waving. Let's everybody welcome the Nichols family. All right, that almost slipped past me right there, but good job. Thank you guys back there. 
Uh, so we're in this series talking about how Jesus came into the world and what it means that he came into the world in the incarnation, that he came in the flesh, and some of the implications of that. And today we're looking at, uh, to wrap this all up, a really important part of why Jesus had to come as a person, why he couldn't just say from heaven things we needed to know, but he had to come into the world as a person, and it was so that he could build his kingdom. Jesus was here to build the kingdom of heaven and release it into the world. And it is so unlike every other kind of kingdom that Jesus had to come into the world to teach and introduce and release the kingdom of heaven and to show us what it is and what it's like and how it's different than every other kind of commitment. So we sing this song. We sing this song, build your kingdom here. Let the darkness flee. Build your kingdom here. And people have been singing songs like this to God for hundreds of years. The Jewish people were singing to God, build your kingdom here, when they came back from exile. They came back to a ruined temple, to homes that were rubble, to fields that were grown over with thorns, and they were singing to God, build your kingdom here again. Last week, our a friend and guest preacher Daniel, uh, as he was right near the end of his sermon, hit on a verse from Acts chapter 1 where the apostles, after having seen all of Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection, are on this mountain with Jesus. He's about to ascend into heaven, and they say to Jesus, is now the moment when you're going to build your kingdom here in Israel again? And Daniel said, I just... I feel like if I was Jesus in that moment, I would have groaned. What do you mean? Is this the moment we're going to build the kingdom here in Israel again? I've been showing you the kingdom. Don't you understand it? So let's take a look again together today at the kingdom Jesus was building. The kingdom that was prophesied. The kingdom that he declared. And some insights today, some questions for us about whether we are living in that kingdom. Okay, let's start with Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah chapter 9. When Isaiah wrote this poem uh, in the people of Israel and for them hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came, he's dealing with this question, will God build and restore his kingdom here for us now? And so starting in verse 1, he saying, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. So all of you who've been troubled, all of you who've been heavy laden and burdened, there's going to be rest from God. No more gloom. In the past, he had humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now what are these lands? They are two of the northernmost tribes in Israel. They are two of the tribes that settled around the Sea of Galilee and even some on the western bank of the Jordan River and a little bit over into the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And these two tribes, so the, the farthest reaches of the north, these are the tribes that experienced the invasion of foreign powers first because they're the easiest to access from the ocean on the left 
from what we would call the uh, Middle East on their right, from what we'd call modern-day Turkey to their north. These are the lands that the Gentile armies would sweep through and into, where warfare would come, where the kingdom would break down on the fringes at first. And even before it was done with swords and spears, this is where Gentile opinions and worldviews would begin to permeate and work their way down towards the center of the nation where Jerusalem is that last stronghold. So Zebulun and Naphtali, these northern counties in Israel, have experienced hard times. But in the future, God will honor Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, the place where all of this influence begins. And by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people who are in darkness, because they're not in the kingdom, they're out of the kingdom, they're in the darkness, they'll see a great light. So Isaiah sings, those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned on them. And then he goes on to say a few more things that we need to see because Jesus will pull from this in his sermon. He says, you've enlarged the nation and you've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest. So the first image or picture is like the harvest time with all the grain coming in, all the fruit coming in, a joyful time to throw up a party to celebrate. But the second image is of warfare. They're like warriors with the plunder. They're taking something good here and something else there and taking money out of a pocket here and armor off of a body there. They're splitting up all of the plunder. It's a, a bloody image, a violent image in violent times. And Isaiah refers to a past deliverance from God. The nation of Midian had been defeated. You shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, all of this strong language and violent imagery to say that there's a time coming in Naphtali, in Zebulun, in the north, where all of these oppressive powers have come and all these worldviews have broken down the kingdom. God's going to shatter those powers. He's going to set things right. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, fuel of the fire. And so the people expected the kingdom to come. Build it here, they might sing. But the way that they thought it would come was with violence and bloodshed and the breaking of foreign powers. And then Isaiah gives this one verse that the church likes to remember uh, even though they forget what all was before it and a lot of what comes after it. For unto us a child is born. Remember, this is the incarnation bit. This is why did he have to come into the world bit. For unto us a child is born. And we've told all of these stories over and over and over, right? He's Aragon. He wields the sword of the true king. He's Luke Skywalker with his lightsaber defending the universe, Right? We tell the stories and all we know to tell them is the warrior with the sword in his hand. And then every Christmas we sing this one little line, this little verse, and we remember, oh yeah, it's the baby who didn't hold the sword in his hand, but his hands were nailed to the right and the left. And we sing that little bit, but we forget that for the Jews, this is a real practical problem. You know, do we fight or don't we? 
The promise is this government will be on his shoulders. And we spiritualize that bit, don't we? Oh yeah, Jesus is king in the sense of spiritual governance. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We love the Prince of Peace part. Of his greatness and his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I mean, that's as strong a claim as any claim Jesus ever makes in the New Testament when he says eternal life or eternal punishment. This is the same kind of words. It says on David's throne he will sit forever and ever. And the Jews go, he's got to be the Skywalker character. He's got to be the Aragon figure. He's got to be a literal king on a literal throne, smashing the nations. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And we go, we see Jesus, the baby, the Prince of Peace. We go, this must all just be spiritualized. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't want to do either thing. He doesn't want to do either thing that we're tempted to do. He doesn't want to come in with his sword or his rod of iron and actually literally smash Gentiles to bits in bloody warfare. No. But he also doesn't allow it to be spiritualized away to where the people of God say, yeah, he's kind of like a governor. He's sort of like the Lord. He's like the Christ, which basically means Messiah King, but we're going to pretend it means Jesus is my buddy. He doesn't allow that. He says words that are strong to them, like repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is where he begins. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus starts saying to the Father in heaven, now build your kingdom here. And it's not going to be spiritual foo-foo, and it's not going to be literally murdering people. And Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Look at that little line right there. Very practical problem. Real world kingdoms causing real world oppression to Jesus' blood relative. Herod gets mad at John, throws him into prison. And this is the spark, this is the moment when the Holy Spirit propels Jesus out to begin his preaching. See, it, it, it isn't just spiritual foo-foo. It has real impact in real people's lives real kingdoms are at war in the world Herod has power in mind and how is he going to grab his power he's going to smash John and Jesus goes out and he begins to preach but he's not going to respond kind and kind to Herod instead of raising his army and marching into the uh, to the Herodian temple mount and smashing and knocking down Herod's house that, by the way, only was excavated about a decade ago. So for years and years, people thought that maybe, maybe Herod's influence in Jerusalem and in the region wasn't quite as large as what the New Testament seems to claim. And then uh, about 10 years ago, they finally finished uncovering the excavation of Herodian, which is just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And when Jesus would have been standing on the hill at Bethany above Jerusalem, looking down into the city, saying prophetic statements like, I say to you, 
If you have faith like a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, it would be. He is probably standing on the hill at Bethany looking at Herodian, which was a temple mount Herod had built unto himself on the backs of slave laborers. They would drag dirt and bricks up and make this mounded hill and put his palace on top of it. And it's only recently that that's been excavated and we can see this gluttonous power that Herod had. It is a real kingdom that is actually executing Jesus' relatives. And it matters. Real world impact, not just spiritual, spiritualized away. And so Jesus hears this, verse 12. And so he leaves Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, because we've just done Isaiah 9, you know exactly where this is going. And for generations of Bible readers who have paid careful attention to what's going on in the prophets and then match that up with the Gospels and then match that up with the epistles, what Paul and others are writing, people that nerd out on the Bible down through the years, this is like a beacon in the night. This is like a signal flare in the sky. Uh, one of my friends would say this is like a bottle rocket going off in your bathtub. It gets your attention. The area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And people go, oh, I remember a song of prophecy about that. The kingdom is coming. The rods will be broken. Right? There's going to be bloody boots and robes all over the place for us to build bonfires out of. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You see it, he's quoting from Isaiah there northern place fringes of the kingdom boundaries of the kingdom the places that get invaded by foreign powers the places that uh turn syncretistic you know what syncretism is this is an important word for us syncretism is when you don't just give up on your faith you start to kind of like blend it in and mix it in with just worldly perspectives and worldly culture so that you go, I'll, I'll keep a little bit of Jesus here, but he's not really practical for this area of my life. So I'll take a little bit of humanism here. I'll take a little bit of kind of just selfish living here, a little bit of materialism here, and I'm just going to kind of make a pretty good life and just mostly sort of spiritually sounding Mix it together, and that's what I'm going to end up with. It usually probably doesn't happen that consciously. But this is what syncretism is. Little bit of this, little bit of that. You know, Jesus is the most important thing in my life and having an iPhone is the second most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing in my life and my preferred news channel is the second most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing in my life, but having this guy be the scholar that you quote in the sermon and not this other guy, that's the second most important thing. Jesus is the most important thing in my life, but my vacation's the second most important thing. My bank account's the second most important thing. You kind of, you got, everybody, just, if you understand what I'm saying about mixing syncretism together in your life, just say yes out loud. Okay, this is what happens on the fringes of the kingdom, right? On the outer borders. This is where the Gentile influence starts to seep in. And so here's Jesus. He's in Zebulun. He's in Naphtali. The people are in darkness.
because all of these things move in to my life and start to cloud the vision of what the kingdom of God is about and I become blinded by it. They're living in darkness and now they've seen a great light uh, uh, on those living in the land of the shadow of death. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 23? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear, say it with me, no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they guide me. Great songs like Psalm 23 that have told us not to be afraid of evil, and yet we are, because we think that without the status symbol of the phone or without the correct politician in the office or without the right amount of money to see us through retirement or whatever is the syncretism that's worked its way in, we think that God won't save us enough. Or that if we have our theologies a little bit wrong, that God won't save that other church down the street or the people that worship in it just as, as Bible reading and Jesus loving and good deeds doing as we are. And here, Jesus quotes the shadow of death, the fear of death, the fear that Jesus at his cross won't be enough. Okay. Now a light is dawning into that. A light is shining. A hope that says there's a king coming, and in his kingdom, he will be enough, and you won't need all these other bits. You won't need other, these other ingredients stirred in. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. So Jesus says to people, repent, which in the Greek is the word metanoeo, okay? And it means change your minds. So Jesus says to the people who are living in whatever version of syncretism they have, the people of Israel, what was the technological product that they most needed? It was probably like, I don't know, a cart or something. They were like, I need the newest one. I need the one that doesn't have the stone wheels. It has the new metal rimmed wheels. It's very innovative. How will I ever get all of my fish to market if I don't have the one that has the wooden slats on the side that you can lift out like that? It's the first tailgate in the history of the world. <laughs> what would I do without it, Peter? I don't know, John. We better get three of them. Because I don't know what their concerns are. We know one of them. Herod is taking our cousins and throwing them in jail and then beheading them if they think differently than he thinks. That's practical. And so into this world, Jesus comes and he says, metanoeo, repent, change your mind. Okay? And this is challenging to the core. And if it doesn't shake you today, it's probably because of the weakness of the preacher, not the weakness of the message. That when Jesus says, change your mind, he means you're living in darkness if you think that will save your world. You're living in darkness if you think that product, that item, whatever it might be, that politic, that theology is going to save your church. If you think there's a strategy that's going to keep the people in your church situation from dying out and shuttering the doors in 20 years, you think that comes down to a strategy Repent, change your mind. You're living in darkness. 
There is one thing that saves. One king and one kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the cross of Jesus. It's the one that enters into the world not by bloodying the world, but being bloodied by it. Now I could spend the rest of the, my next last five minutes or we could, if we wanted to, for the next three months, we could start a Kingdom of God series. But today we're just going to, we're just going to move very quickly into one practical New Testament letter in which this was happening for the people. Okay, We have to make a quick left-hand turn to make this mean anything for us today. Build your kingdom here. Now the Corinthian church, a young Christian church planted by Paul, they're struggling with the same question. God, give your power here. Send your kingdom here. Help us to be your church here. And they have all kinds of ideas, some of them syncretistic, about what they think that's going to look like and what they think that's going to mean. And to them, Jesus would be saying, repent, change your mind. Remember that there's one king, one kingdom, there's one throne, that's his cross that elevates him to his position as king of the universe. And it's not spiritual foo-foo kingdom. When he says he's the king, he means it. When he says he's Lord, he means it. When he says he's Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, he means it. This has to permeate your heart and change your life or it means nothing. But it also shouldn't be misunderstood for the literal violent inaction that the world uses to try to save itself. So, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Notice that first of all, even though these people are doing something that Paul considers very, very wrong, he can call them brothers and sisters. For Paul, what they're doing is unacceptable. They need to repent, change their mind, metanoeo. Because this is not building the kingdom of God, it's building the kingdom of each individual person. It's building their own influence, their own power structures, their own clubs, their own groups. And yet to them, Paul can say, but you are my brothers and my sisters. That's a remarkable kingdom insight by itself right there. He says, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's our governor, Jesus, the king. That's our sovereign, Jesus, the anointed one. He uses kingdom language to say, remember who we're responsible to this morning. And then... This is what he has to say. He says, I want all of you to agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And if you're, if you're taking any notes today, here's what I want you to write down. I want you to write down that this is an attitude. Just put the word attitude in your notes, okay? This whole sentence right here, uh, or a couple of short phrases really, that you agree with one another in what you say, and look right here, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. This is an attitude first. This no one ever agrees with everything in every word and every thought. But you do with an attitude of love towards each other. Okay, I have several African-American friends who have been faithful in my life to remind me that when we talk about relationships between white people and black people, to use the idea of colorblindness and say like, hey, I'm colorblind. I don't see your color and I don't want you to see mine is not helpful. It's a false, shallow attempt at doing this 
uh, to the letter, but not in the attitude. It is to say the only way we could get along, or the foundation of us getting along, is that there's no differences among us, and we can't see anything different. And that's not actually what this means. What this means is have the attitude towards each other. That whether you're black and I'm white, or whether uh, you, know, you watch that news channel or I watch this one, or the things that he's going to name in this paragraph, which is you have favorite Christian teachers and you don't all agree on who is the best Christian teacher. That you have this attitude, this like-mindedness, that you love them as brothers and sisters, like I'm calling you brothers and sisters, even though right now I disagree with the way you're acting. And that is to be colorful, not colorblind. It is to say, I see the differences between us and can still imagine a world in which we are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ and in which what he's given you is celebrated and what he's given you is celebrated and what he's given me is celebrated. And so I want to make a challenge here that we have misunderstood this as conformity when what Paul means is an attitude of love and acceptance towards each other on the basis of the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed, informed me that there's quarrels among you, so they're fighting, and this is the whole heart of the matter. Okay, this is, this is a one insight sermon, and this is the insight. The people expect the kingdom of God, they ask for the kingdom of God, they wait for the kingdom of God, and then we miss the kingdom of God because here's the insight, how it happened in one church 2,000 years ago, and now this is for you and for me, for each one of us, not to label on the person next to you, but to look deeply into our own hearts and to ask, is there any hint of this? Is there any scent of this? Is there any flavor of this? What I mean is one of you says, I follow Paul. And another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Remember the apostle Peter was also named Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And Paul just asks, is Christ divided? Like, is this really the foundation of the kingdom as you're all choosing corners? Is the foundation of the kingdom showing up in Corinth that you, you all have groups and clubs? You have chosen dividing lines for the church based on the, the names of these Christian teachers. And here, churches, we're looking deeply into our heart. Okay, you have to do the translation for you, and I have to do it for me with the help of God as we pray through this, with the power of the Holy Spirit, is to ask this question, is there any hint of that in me? And the truth is, is that all of us carry with us every single day into church and into the workplace things that have the potential to bring this kind of division. Because we all have favorite products. We all have pet philosophies. We all have, we even will ask each other, what's your favorite Bible verse? That, that has the potential right there to be a dividing line. You go, well, that's not the most important thing the Bible has to say about that topic. This is. And these, we would look at this and we would say, this is ridiculous that these people are picking Christian teachers and making little clubs. And we might even resort to blaming others and saying, see, that's what's wrong with denominations as they all pick human leaders. And they, okay, that is to use it for the opposite purpose that Paul wrote it. He wants you to look inside and, and ask, am I doing this? And this is why this, this last line of verse 12 or this last phrase is the one that really carries the weight of the passage. 
He says, and some of you are saying, I follow Christ. And for all of us, Bible-reading, Jesus-loving, church-attending Christians, we would say that's the right answer. The only right answer is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And yet Paul, in this passage, is saying, and that is wrong. How can it ever be wrong to say the answer is Jesus? Paul says right here, some of you say Paul and Apollos and Cephas and others Christ. The whole program is wrong. How can it be wrong for the answer to be Jesus? It's wrong for the answer to be Jesus when you're using it as a trump card to show why your theology is better than the guy who says, and mine is Cephas. It is wrong to use Jesus as your trump card and say, if I put the name of Jesus on my church, then it is better than the church that you go to. If I put the name of Jesus on my theology, then it's better than the theology that you have. I am going to be sp more spiritual and more holy. See, this is what's going on in Corinth. One guy is the quiet one sitting back in the corner watching this all melt down. And over here is the Paul Club, and here's the Apollos Club. And this guy goes, I know how I can leverage authority in the church. Once they've all given their answers, I'll stand up and I'll say, my answer is Jesus. Now you're all wrong and I'm right. And that doesn't match the attitude of this passage. Of course Jesus is the answer. Of course he's our only hope. But even Jesus we use and abuse to try to make ourselves sound as if we're superior to someone else. At least the potential is there. So as you look into your own heart, just ask, do I have any of that smell in me? Do I have any of that potential in me today? And so Paul will say some things that sound just almost ridiculous to us. He is a preacher who's not proud that he's baptized people. And Paul has a solid understanding of baptism. Baptism is important to Paul. He talks about it in several of his letters. And yet here he can say, I'm so relieved that I didn't baptize you guys. Not many of you, a few of you, Crispus and Gaius and their household, and oh yeah, Stephanus and that too, but I don't think it was anybody else because this is what Paul is saying is, I don't want to even get associated with this kind of club mentality in church where you take the kingdom of God and on the borders of the kingdom, on the fringes of the kingdom, you allow that syncretism and that influence to start working its way in where Jesus died for the church. He died for those brothers and sisters, the ones in this building and the ones in the next building down the street and the next house, Chloe's house down the street. Jesus died for all of these brothers and sisters and yet you have found a convenient way to write them off and make them less. I don't want to be part of that. I'm glad I didn't baptize too many of you. Christ didn't send me for that, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence so that people would be impressed by me, and the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. But the cross itself is foolishness to those who are perishing. And this is the problem, is that for you and for me, even for the preacher of your church, there are days and there's moments in every day where the cross is foolishness to me. Where I think that having read a book and knowing an answer or having a philosophy or having saved enough to be able to buy a certain product somehow puts me in a better place than the person on my left and the person on my right. And the cross will always destroy that kind of kingdom to promote the kingdom of Jesus who didn't bloody but was bloodied.
Today, this is the Jesus that we worship, that we sing to and that we pray with to the Father in heaven. God, let your kingdom come. Let's stand and let's sing. And if you'd like to pray with us, come down front. Nice.